Welcome to PropTech Espresso. My name is Mark Hurst, a former investment banker and serial startup junkie turned real estate technologist. On each 15 to 20 minute episode, you'll hear from leading entrepreneurs and industry experts on the opportunities and challenges for the rapidly changing PropTech sector. Thanks for listening today. Grab your favorite beverage and let's learn something new. Welcome back. Uh, my guest today is J.P. Ackerman. Uh, J.P. and I work together at, at House Canary, a residential data analytics company based in San Francisco. It's also been an invaluable resource to me as I built up uh, Herstech Solutions. Today, J.P. is an entrepreneur in residence at Data Collective Venture Capital, where he's advised a number of early stage organizations on go-to-market and product strategy. Uh, JP has also spent a career around real estate, including having starting a residential lender, Simple Finance, leading all of the commercial efforts as EVP, uh, head of sales at House Canary, and spending 10 years at Pulte Group helping to manage portfolio acquisitions and dispositions. Through these roles, JP's led efforts in partnerships with uh, single family uh, residential operators, iBuyers, lobbying groups, governmental and data rating agencies, capital providers, lenders, insurers, data providers, and analytic developers. JP, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you're here for my, uh, my first episode. <laughs> so I'd like to kick things off today by, by defining prop tech. Uh, my experience has been that there is no singular agreed upon definition of prop tech today. When you think about this, uh, why do you think we have so much of a, a spectrum around this and, and how do you define it? It's a big question and I think it comes down to a lot of, a lot of moving parts. I mean, I see prop tech as an extremely broad category that really revolves around how we use, construct, manage, and transact real property. And as a category, it intersects with so many other technological sectors like FinTech, AI, deep tech, construction tech, mobility, insure tech. And I'm pretty sure I missed about 10 other ones that it touches because, you know, frankly, the real property market is so big. And when I look at the breadth of the category, I think in many ways, it's reflective of how early most of the thinking is in this space. In many ways, we remain in PropTech 1.0. And while we're quickly evolving uh, from some of the web search platforms that sort of defined PropTech over the last 15 years, um, it's still very much in its infancy. You know, real estate was at the epicenter of the, the Great Recession. And a lot of the thinking that was in place at that time really stalled out as the rules of the road were so rapidly changing. I mean, it's interesting as you think about it, like the inability for most of the solutions to be developed because regulations were shifting. We shifted how we lived. We shifted how and where we, uh, where we worked. We changed development where it essentially stopped for a number of years in all of these spaces. And, you know, while, you know, this, what we're going through right now with COVID-19, the recessions that sort of in front of us, while it's not a real estate driven one, we will see a lot of change resulting from it. But, you know, 15 years ago, as we were going into the last recession, it was a real estate centric recession where everything from those, the fundamental understanding of how we transact on property was stunted. And we saw new regulations hitting the marketplace. And I think while we've, as we've reemerged from this, the themes that uh, have taken hold, they've allowed a more concerted effort between investors and entrepreneurs to take shape. I mean, as these rules have uh, started to kind of get into a place where they're more understood, uh, we've seen an increasing volume of startups. We've seen the emergence of dedicated funds and evolving thought leadership in the space. So at the core, I see there to be really three primary pillars of prop tech. 
first of all, and I think the sort of biggest component of this is like the reimagination of how we use physical infrastructure. The ideas that sort of take shape here, like things like co-living or shared office spaces, short duration houses, to name a few of the big ones that have uh, hit the market. Second, the advancement of physical infrastructure and how it's constructed. I, I mean, we rethink about, you know, the type of materials that we use and like the advancement of construction technology, the inventory and the structures of uh, how they're combined. Uh, this is a big area and it's very much in its early stages because I think how complex and durable the structures are that are there. And last, but I think that probably easiest one that we've seen a lot of advancement is the enablement technology for the existing physical infrastructure, things like sensors and operating systems. Um, those seem to be some of the maturest uh, aspects of the kind of broader uh, built space, but also tools like data collection, predictive analytics, digitization of how property transacts, all of them which are, I think, emerging in more uh, meaningful ways in the last few years that have changed a lot of what we is happening behind the scenes on, on property transactions themselves. Awesome insight. Yeah, I think a lot of the themes that you you hit upon are exactly what drew me into PropTech and has really kept me interested um, as, as I look forward. There's, um, there's a lot of kind of nebulousness here, but so much opportunity um, for, for companies attacking all of those different spaces that you, uh, you described there. It's interesting. I think when you look at it, and, and PropTech, as I said, I, I believe it's such a big, general, a broad space that you know we have an eye buyer, something transacting on properties and making it easier. But you know, to be fair, it's not as heavy duty in terms of tech as it is on the capital markets. Uh, we see tools like the large banks, you know, mobilizing behind these these players to bring new forms of capital markets financing to to bear and really kind of rethink what the uh, kind of overall fundamentals are in this market. Um, I think to that end, you know, capital can change. The way capital flows can change pretty quickly. Uh, the way that, you know, physical infrastructure is built is, is much harder to shift. So you know, I certainly see some of these different pillars advancing at very different speeds, but I think that's what's exciting about it. There's a, there's so much inefficiency. And even when you think about like the overall kind of broader sustainability and, uh, of these buildings, you know, the, we're, the enablement technologies are sort of phase 1.0, whereas you think about construction materials being 2.0 in that. And it will take a long time for new structures to have a meaningful impact on the overall health of the, or the sustainability of the built infrastructure. But the reality here is that I think we're seeing a rapid advancement of those deeper tech, uh, deeper technologies that are harder to advance. And, you know, they're getting a lot of attraction in the space from, from capital providers. So I think with the emergence of these funds, it's um, it's really gotten a ton of attention. I mean, I think Fifth Wall and uh, Metaprop and some of these different groups who have put a lot into the kind of globalization of prop tip thinking, as well as the research behind it, is just driving entrepreneurs from what has historically been considered a an old boys club, a uh, really antiquated system, and they're drawing entrepreneurs to come and really advance that thinking at rapid speed. So I think we're, we, we have not yet seen the golden age of this space. I think we're very much uh, in those early stages. I think the next 10 to 15 years will be enormously transformational or tech as a whole. Great. I think uh, just to dig in on uh, elements of what you've been describing uh, in, in, those, in that feedback, uh, what do you think, or how do you feel is, uh, what's the most important area of prop tech today for you? 
Gosh, I think it's really hard to sort of nail down one. I mean, I think that if you look at the why it's important, uh, just as a whole, it's enormous market, right? You have $33 trillion in residential assets. You have another $16 trillion in commercial assets. I mean, just we'll round to $50 trillion in assets that are sitting here. And while these are, you see a lot of construction and new assets being added, but frankly, they're highly durable. I mean, these are assets that are, built to last for decades, if not centuries in many cases. And having spent so much time around development, like, you know, the advancement of, of code in the municipalities across the United States is rapid, but the impact of those code changes is barely measurable in short duration. So number of five, 10 years, you know, code advancement might only hit, you know, one to 2% of the housing stock in a given area. So, you know, when we think about like the way that technologies are adopted in the marketplace, it, it makes it really challenging for these built technologies to come in. Whereas I think enablement technologies become phase one and a very important one. So I think these technologies that uh, allow older infrastructure to be retrofitted uh, while simultaneously advancing newer infrastructures is an incredibly important sort of balance in the marketplace and how both the venture capital world invests in this space, as well as how we encourage research and the kind of mobilization of entrepreneurs. Uh, needless to say, though, I, I think one of the most important aspects here is how you take the existing housing stock and existing commercial space and allow it to be become a part of the kind of the technological future. Um, what we can't allow uh, is that these buildings become, um, gosh, what's the right way of putting it? How they, be, they become relegated to items of the past where they're no longer meaningfully contributing to society. And they, um, I think these new technologies are things that can help us to really change the, the value that's created in these and better utilize the underlying real estate beneath it. Uh, so there are fundamentally some enormous challenges to it. I mean, you look at this, the, there's, massive barriers to widespread adoption. I mean, these old infrastructures, uh, you know, to be clear, I mean, it's, a, it's very hard to drive, especially in the commercial space, the advancement, unless you can drive a, a meaningful short-term ROI. I mean, ownership durations are, are not, you know, wildly long in this. So when you look at where people are making capital invest, investments, it's something that has ROI in the neighborhood of like two to three years tops. Uh, and that's a critical element of being able to develop things that are easily adoptable by building owners. Um, I think to that end, just the extreme cost sensitivity upfront period and the lack of defensibility around some of these tools also presents some challenges from the investment spectrum. I mean, when you think about enablement technologies, um, because the infrastructure is so old and antiquated around many of these old buildings, it's really hard to sort of mobilize. And I've seen some great new you know, pitches as of late that have better use of sensors, better data collection that allow you to go and take an old building and help bring it into more into the modern era, uh, which allows so much information for data collection to monitor HVAC, to think about different ways the building can be utilized in the commercial space or even the, the residential space, which is really important to, I think, being more mo nimble as we move forward. Um, but I noted one thing there. I think there's one that stands out to me that is a big deal here, which is limited data in this industry. For most of us who have been around real estate for so long, like we sort of think about real estate as being a very data rich industry. You have a lot of transactional data. You have a lot of the uh, byproduct data that comes out of like the title infrastructure that's there. But the reality is that it's, it's very opaque in terms of what we really know about the, 
the installed base of housing and commercial uh, commercial space. We know very little about how they're used. We know very little about how the um, the the inventory within the homes or within the office spaces. Um, and it allows us to, or does not allow us to be very nimble about, you know, addressing technologies to better, uh, better inform decision-making around the use and the efficiency of those buildings. And so transactional data is typically also relegated only for sale transactions as opposed to leasing. So especially in the commercial space, you have a, a monopoly with really one provider of it. But even that data on the leases is still very limited. It's skewed, it's self-reported in many cases. Um, it prevents us, I think, from having as data-rich an industry as we need for an industry that represents $50 trillion in assets. So um, I'm, really, I'm really excited about some of the tools that I've been seeing introduced here. I mean, there's some interesting applications of blockchain ledgers to try and understand what's in a property and how it changes over time. I mean. I think if you've been around things like permit data, we've all seen the challenges of like really understanding how a building evolves over time because the, you know, the different approaches municipalities have on, on permits. But you know, I think to the extent that we're creating enablement technologies, it allows us a route to get to really good understanding of those properties, how people move and use those, utilize those properties, and ultimately what we can do to make them more efficient. Um, so as we look at that, I think it's an enormous opportunity, but it's also an enormous challenge on how we enter the marketplace. And I think last but not least, one of the challenges that stands out to me, think about residential in particular. We as a society have shifted how we think about home ownership. And you know, I think as a family, we, we've shifted like when home ownership is a necessity, if it's ever. And I think as a society, we, we place less value on the fact that you have to own a house. Um, the last 15 years, we've seen now two major recessions, uh, one of which saw an enormous shift in how we thought about real estate because the values were inflated and that, uh, therefore you know, fell pretty sharply. In this one, we think about how we use real estate very differently. I mean, we, we're going to see a lot, I think, of changes around COVID-19 about how we work, how we live, et cetera. We can talk more about that. But like, I think when we think about the residential side, we really have to kind of coalesce around a certain way of living where we live uh, in order for us to be super innovative. And I think that's where we're looking to entrepreneurs to think differently about all the tools that both enable that, uh, you know, things like financing, uh, different ownership structures, whether it be equity or debt, um, and allowing people to sort of come to a sort of longer term conclusion about where ownership fits in. Uh, I think we've seen, gosh, single family rental. We see the largest operator in invitation homes, I think around 80, 85,000 properties, but we're talking 400,000 properties at this point, I think that are institutionally owned single family rentals. Uh, I mean, this is a an enormously changed class of ownership from what we saw a, a decade or 15 years ago, where you know, I think the biggest owners would own hundreds, if not just low thousands of homes. And were considered massive portfolios, which at that time they were. Yep. But as we start to rethink that in this next cycle, I think we're going to likely see millennials taking a very different stance on it. And frankly, the majority of homes are owned today by a 50 plus population that aren't going to need those houses, certainly not the location and the size in which they have. So we're going to need to see a shift around this, which I think will cause a kind of a distinct shift in how people think about kind of longer term occupancy of their home uh, and how they 
intersect with that renting, owning, or ideally something in between. Excellent points. Uh, I want to take our, our final question and kind of go back to a point that you hit briefly on on that prior response in terms of, of COVID. Uh, you know, obviously, most of us for the last three plus months have had our lives, uh, both personally and professionally, uh, impacted on a massive scale by by COVID. Uh, as, as you think about COVID and, and prop tech, what do you think are going to be the, uh, the short term and the long term impacts of, of COVID? Well, there's a lot, right? I mean, you know, listen, I think that housing and how we, how we view it has been a topic that has been on people's mind in a way that it hasn't been for a very, very long time. Um, I think there's a lot more people thinking about this today than there have been. Uh, and it, it's a huge shift. And I think similarly, we see that around the office space. And those two drivers are fundamentally the kind of drivers of where we locate in the United States. So I, I don't think there's a short way to answer this question. My, my two cents on it, uh, and take it as just that, because there's a lot of uh, surprises that might be around the corner, but I, I have a sense that we're going to really challenge the norms of, of shared amenities that we've gotten so accustomed to for a focus on things that are, we have direct and you know, private access to. Said more simply, in a residential space, I probably want to be in an area where I can have more space uh, so that I have my own office, so I have my own yard, so I have my own playground, and I don't have to rely on these public areas uh, as much as I do today. And that, in other words, might be able to mean more suburbanization. It might mean more shift to non-urban markets. Um, you could see, I think, a lot that come from that. But maybe sort of best stated is I don't think that coming out of COVID – people's lives are going to be tied as much to where they their headquarters for their company is. And sorry, go ahead. No, ab absolutely. I think that that, that, that notion has uh, had a major shock um, through this event uh, applied to it. I think it's been in the mainstream thought that a lot of companies have um, uh, been talking about for the last, last couple of years, but uh, you know, there and and certainly there were a few companies like GitHub who kind of have taken the the lead in in that area. But for most for most organizations, they barely tipped their toes in it. Uh, this COVID forced forced the the discussion, forced the experiment, and I think everybody, um, you know, there's been a lot of acceptance for. Uh, the, the working from home and, and not having to be in a central office. I think people understand work can get done. Uh, people, uh, uh, managers know that they can still manage people from, from afar. The technology is there today that while imperfect, uh, definitely allows for people to, to do their job. So I think um, we, we are forever changed as it, as it relates to not, not having to be um, you know, within driving distance of a major head, uh, corporate headquarters. Yeah, it's interesting. I, and I, I think that while it's gotten so much attention now to what we've been discussing, you know, this has been a trend long underway. We, in, you know, roughly 10 years ago, when I was at Pulte Group, we were doing a lot of experimentation about what the underlying demands for the, how a floor plan would be for, you know, buyers and different, you know, social uh, social classes around the United States. So if I'm buying an entry-level home, a move up, a second move up, or retirement uh, home, you know, what are the things I consider to mandatory within those? 
one of the shifts we saw, and it, this was really true in a lot of what I would consider the non-gateway cities. So you saw this a lot in Las Vegas, you saw it a lot in Texas and throughout Arizona, where you saw the need, the demand for home offices, and in many cases, two home offices, because you had so many re remote workers. And while as a society, we may not have moved to a remote work in mass in the way we may coming out of COVID, you know, 10 years ago, this is well underway. If you were buying a new home in Phoenix, the demand for an office was rapidly increasing. And so as we look at this, I think this is a proliferation across a wider number of segments of the, of the working industries that allow you to sort of uh, you know, disconnect from the office setting. And yeah, I think this is going to be an area where it was a, an office choice uh, in leading up to COVID or a company's choice leading up to COVID where I don't know that it will always be the company's choice. I think what you're likely to see is a much greater mandate from employees about how this transforms. And, uh, you know, when you look at this, I think there's a control, a control mechanism that was that we historically have so much looked to our, our workspace for community. And I know that's not a long history, but I think for the last 20, 25 years, that's become an increasing norm where the community we built is, is you know, the happy hours are after work with our colleagues, not as much as the community in which you live. And I, for one, look at the community I live in today, and I have a, a much tighter bond with that community than I've had in a lot, my adult life. I mean, I've spent more of every single day in it got to know my neighbors in a way that was probably much more uh, much more similar to what we think of as being like the you know 50s and 60s and as a result of that when I think about what I demand out of a community in the future I will look more about the community in which I live as a, a place for that outlet and maybe less so about work uh, which I think is a is potentially a renaissance in America in a lot of ways which is exciting but I definitely don't think that this will remain in the hands of the companies to decide. And I think it's going to allow for the development or maturation of many markets outside of these big job hubs like San Francisco, LA, New York to emerge. Uh, to a degree, I think we've seen some of this already. I mean, we look at the emergence of places like Nashville and Seattle, uh, Denver, Austin, what used to not so long ago be considered cities that weren't as desirable as a San Francisco or an LA or New York, just explode and they be, they've become you know epicenters for for growth, for both jobs to be located to be able to get to that talent as well as for people you know moving even without jobs to go and live. So, I think we're going to see an enormous shift in the residential side of things, and I think that in many ways will drive how we think about how we work. Yeah, it's interesting some of the points you bring up because certainly the reason that I chose to live in uh, the current area that I, I reside in, Arinda, it was for the community. But I, actually for the first four plus years that I lived here, I barely walked down my own street. COVID um, kind of forced a, a change and I've actually in the last three months gotten to know my neighbors for the first for the first <laughs> the first time um, so uh, you know even even though it was it was there in a criteria and, and, and a driving force uh, I didn't uh, I didn't take advantage of it and uh, certainly um, you know if there's there's one blessing that I can count from from COVID it's actually the opportunity to engage with my my neighbors on a, on a basis that I I hadn't before so uh, starting to build some of that that community that you're alluding to. 
JP, this is this has been awesome, but I think uh, need to uh, to wind things down today, and and hopefully we have the opportunity on a future episode to to bring you back and dive uh, into some additional areas around this. Uh, wanted to give uh, you a chance to um, uh, tell everybody that maybe looking to contact you. Um, the best way to reach you should they have any questions or, or want to reach out and connect? Yeah, uh, absolutely. LinkedIn's probably best. Please, I, I really value rich conversations with smart thinkers around the space uh, and no agenda necessary. Just would look forward to the opportunity to connect. It's uh, just under JP Ackerman on, on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to send me a message or hit me up. I look forward to it. Thanks for the time today, Mark. All right. Thanks, JP. Take care. Talk to you soon. All right, everyone. Cheers. Thank you for joining today. You've been listening to an episode of PropTech Espresso. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, visit herstex.com backslash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with a new episode.